Welcome to the ADS Podcast. This is where we talk about all things audience development for the arts related. Join us for discussions about audience building tips, ideas, concepts, and philosophies with sometimes brought in special guests. And now, here's your latest podcast for you. Hi, this is Shoshana Fenitsa from Audience Development Specialists, and I hope you're ready for the next ADS podcast episode. So my next guest is Erica Sipes, who I met on Twitter. She is a pianist and a practice coach. She'll be talking a little bit about that on the podcast. But we are mainly going to be talking about her management experience at a toy store and how that correlates with arts marketing and arts management. And of course, with arts audience development. And we'll also be talking with Erica about best Twitter practices. She's an avid Twitter user, and it is something that is dear to her heart is the use of Twitter and how it has changed her relationships with people and meeting new people. So I think we can learn a lot from the way Erica uses Twitter. So I think you're going to be in for a treat with this conversation. She's a long-term friend of mine, so it's a little more casual than some of the, the past podcasts that I've done, and I think you will enjoy it immensely. Before we invite Erica onto the show, I'd like to read her biography so you get to know her a little bit better. Erica Ann Sipes, pianist, received her bachelor's and master's degree in piano performance from the Eastman School of Music. She has been an adjunct faculty member at Radford University and at the Governor's School of the Arts, and has freelanced as a piano collaborator and coach in Michigan, Idaho, and Virginia. For the past two years, she has led the piano intensive program at the Roanoke Youth Orchestra Summer Institute. In the summer of 2012, Ms. Sipes officially launched her own business as a practice coach, offering coachings, workshops, planning sessions, and practice boot camps for anyone that could use some help with practicing. She is also a prominent blogger, writing about her views on performing, learning music, and the classical music world in general. Her blog, Beyond the Notes, can be found at ericaannsipes.blogspot.com. During the day, Miss Sipes can often be found at Imagination Station, a toy store in Roanoke's Grandin Village, where she has been the manager since 2015. Let's welcome Erica to the show. Welcome, Erica. Hello there. How are you this fine morning? I am very lovely. It's a beautiful day out here. And what's the weather like in Roanoke? <laughs> Roanoke. How's the weather in Roanoke? It is absolutely glorious. I love this time of year because it's sunny and warm, but not too humid yet. So I love it. Oh, great, great. So let's get this started. So the, the we're talking about toying with Twitter. And as I've mentioned to our audiences, you run a toy store and also you're a musician extraordinaire in, in many capacities. So we're going to start the conversation with Twitter to get started. And how long have we known each other? How did we meet? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, so I was looking it up this morning. So I joined Twitter in 2009 towards, I think, in the summer. 
so June 2009. And the first tweet I found with you was like November or December of that same year. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. So it was really pretty soon after I joined Twitter. Um, yeah. So it's, I can't believe it's been 10 years, but there you have it. It's 10 years and way too many tweets. I won't even divulge how many tweets I've tweeted. So <laughs> I know I'm pretty up there too. And as far as the count, do you happen to have that tweet? I was just curious if I did. I said. took a picture of it and it was, I think you had shared some like a, a electronic postcard you could send out to others hmm. um, that had a musical take to it. I don't remember. And I retweeted that. And said something, and then I think you responded, like, you know, with your typical thank you or whatever. So, yeah. Oh, neat. Neat. Mm -hmm. And then the rest is history. We've had other Skype calls with each other. We've uh, had millions of Twitter conversations. And I think, were you part of one of our Twitter chats that I used to host? I think so. I think you were. (laughs) Uh So, yeah, we've been pretty much involved and, uh, involved on Facebook and it kind of carried over to other things on the internet as well. So that's, that's really cool. Um, We haven't met each other yet in person, which is kind of fun, but uh, hopefully I'll be able to get out to Virginia or vice versa. If you're in Colorado, hopefully we can actually meet in person, but that's the beauty of Twitter. You, You get to meet people all over the world. And if you do it right, which is how we're going to, be talking about Twitter is doing it the proper way to build relationships and take it further. Um, you can actually meet some amazing people all across the globe. Absolutely. And I think a lot of Twitter people that are avid Twitterers would say oddly, I guess that I think my, my Twitter friends are actually some of my best friends, even though many of them, if not most of them, I've never met in person, but There's something about the platform that I think really encourages uh, a very unique kind of relationship. So it's pretty awesome. Let's talk about that a little bit. So what about the platform do you like and how has it helped you build those types of relationships? Yeah, I mean, I think there's something like what's the difference between Twitter and other social media? I don't know. For me, I think because it's especially at first, it was not a visual uh, version of social media. So you don't have images getting in your way, that type of thing. Um, and so I think it encourages more the use of words. And of course, the challenge of doing the whole uh, character limit thing, that also makes people think a little bit more carefully about how they phrase things and how they say things. Um, and especially at first, I think that was more of an issue because I think the character count was less um, and that type of thing. So, yeah, it just really forces you to think carefully about what you're putting out there, what thoughts you're putting out there and how you respond to other people's thoughts as well. Oh, I definitely agree. It makes you be as succinct as possible, get the point across and hopefully in a friendly way, it's it's hard to scream on Twitter, so to speak, <laughs> uh, for the most part. And I yeah. remember in the beginning, it, it seemed to be more conversational than it is now. Um, that's something we could talk about a little bit later. Yeah. But, but I remember having like lots and lots of conversations because Twitter at that point did not have a like button. 
And I keep telling people that this like button has changed Twitter, and I don't think it's for the best. But before then, everybody, if you wanted to respond, there was no like button, so you had to hit the at reply and say something. And so it was a great conversation starter because that's what it was all about was the conversations and, and right. replying and, and retweeting. But now you hit the like button and you don't get a retweet. You don't get a mm-hmm. conversation going. But back then in the day and, and many of the people that have been on there a long time still use it that way, which is fantastic. Right. Um, and then with those at replies, that's where the relationship really unfolds. Mm-hmm. So, um, what were, do you have like a, like a story about, aside from us, a relationship that has really grown over Twitter that you can talk about? Oh, probably. Um, let me think about this. Well, I haven't been in touch with her as much, but, um, there's the sensible flutist was her Twitter handle. It's Alexis right. de Palazzo. And she's had quite an evolution herself over the years. Um, and I haven't spoken with her as much recently, but she is somebody that actually grew up in the area where I am, but then she relocated um, to another state a while back. Um, but And I think she just kind of started joining in our conversations because we definitely talked a lot at the time about um, the difficulty of making us thought for yourself as a performer in the world Mm -hmm. and dealing with that whole thing. Um, And so that's kind of, I think, how it started with Alexis. But then also pretty early on, she asked if I would be interested in accompanying her at a recital that she wanted to do in her hometown because I was so close by. Um, And so that was just such a wonderful way to meet each other, of course, was to get together and to play music. Um, So that's been a really good friendship. And then uh, not long after that, we also had made friends with a clarinetist. And I'm so embarrassed I'm blanking on her name, but she. <laughs> I know she was known I, as Maza. Yes. Uh, yeah. Thank I'm trying to remember. Marion. I think it's Marion. Yeah. Harrington. Yes. Harrington. Yes. Right. Yes. And so she's a Spanish clarinetist. And she was kind of going through an evolution in her life. She was trying to get back into music or wanting to get back into music as a clarinetist, but she was like a, she was in the money field, like finances or something. Right, right. So she was doing fascinating things that required bravery and kind of wanting to follow your dreams. Anyway, um, at one point she came over to the United States and so, and we, Alexis and I wanted to meet her in person. So I drove up to where Alexis lived. And then together, she and I drove up to meet Marion in person in like Pittsburgh or something like that. And it was just the wildest thing. I mean, we only met for one meal, but to have all three of us in the same place talking in person was just unbelievable. Yeah, that that is amazing. I wish I was there as well because I, I helped Marion a little bit with that project. And so right. it's amazing how just the connections from a one little tweet can turn into something like that. Exactly. So I know there exactly. was, there was other projects that were pretty interesting that happened around that time. Oh, what about yeah. the Twitter symphony? Oh, yes, with Chip Michael. Yeah, exactly. I remember that one. Yeah. So with that one, Chip, and I think this was his, his baby. He's a composer and he thought, 
how cool would it be to have a symphony of Twitter people that could record pieces of music separately and then he would put it all together. I know I have to find that so I can post now that we're having this conversation. I need to find if you have any of those recordings, that would be just fabulous to put put out there so people can see uh, all the different projects that could be made possible just by using Twitter. It's just kind of kind of amazing. Well, and that kind of was the precursor before. And I, I don't remember his name. There's that famous guy that does the similar thing, but with choir stuff. Oh, oh yes, yes. Eric Whitaker. Yes, you know? yes. Yes, well, yes. I kind of like to think that Chip Michael actually inspired Eric Whitaker. I kind of <laughs> doubt it, but you never know. <laughs> well, great minds think alike, so it might have been one of those ideas that were out in the Twitter sphere, and, and both of yep. them grabbed it, for yep, sure. absolutely. For sure. Yep. And there were some other relationships, and now I'm embarrassed. I can't remember her handle, but um, I think it was Rachmaninoff something. Oh, Rock D Minor. Rock D Minor, there you go. And how I I think I used to tweet with her every single day and we had these these conversations about audience development and whether or not you should focus on the younger audiences or or just focus on the audiences you have and broaden that so she was she was firm in the camp of you know what just just go with your audiences and don't ignore them right. and and then the rest will take care of itself and I I would be like but everybody needs to be involved and we had these these hot conversations mm-hmm. um and then we also did a fun project of following the um piano competitions that were happening online that so, was very yeah fun. we got into conversations about that too the the different pianists and and the competitors and such yeah but the fact that you get to know these people pretty well, at least in one facet of their lives. And it was so sad when she passed away um, that, and I believe there was another friend who passed away like right around that time. And both of yep. them I had met on Twitter and were, were talking to almost daily. Yeah. So it it's a, a deep loss, even though we've never met these people, they, they have, they become part of our lives our daily lives when you build these conversations and relationships on Twitter. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I think a lot, and I get asked this question all the time, you know, why, what makes a Twitter friendship so different? And I think it's because there's no, you know, there's no obligation to be friends with these people, right? (laughs) True, true. I mean, you can walk away at any time and there's, it's not awkward, it's whatever, but so the friendships that you make are friendships that you have chosen not out of obligation, but because you truly are and genuinely interested in what they have to say, what they're doing, um, and that you care about, you know, what, what each other is doing. And I think that's a pretty unique thing. So some people might think it's strange, but <laughs> um, I think it's pretty special. It is pretty special. And one of the reasons why I think building relationships on Twitter is that special is the fact that you don't have all the other outside senses getting in the way. I know that mm. sounds funny, but um, I don't know if I if I've pretty much told this audience before, but I was part of the pilot of the blind cafe that's happening all around the country. <sighs> yeah. And I don't know if you went to one of those, but it's an amazing experience where you're totally having a dinner and a community conversation in the dark complete dark. You can't see a thing. So you're having conversations with people around you without knowing what they look like. And so there's no prejudice at all. 
You can't That's even wild. form prejudice against the person. You're just having the conversation. It's the conversation itself. It's the friendliness. It's the companionship of being together in this experience. And in a way, I think Twitter is very much like that because mm-hmm. we don't we don't know each other as as the I don't know the the skin or the personality so much. It's just our thoughts and our feelings out there in the Twitterverse that we put out there. And that's what we're working with. And in a sense, it's it's almost like we're working with the main core best of that person. So mm-hmm. uh, I think in that sense, it makes Twitter beyond special when you're getting to know somebody. Absolutely. I think there is a flip side to that. And this would kind of go along with, you know, things I would recommend doing or not doing when you're doing Twitter. Okay. Uh, I think you have to be careful because because you're not seeing the other person's face when you're having a conversation. I think it's important to be careful how you word things mm-hmm. um, because the other person is not going to get your tone of voice or oh, true. Gl- glean meaning what you're trying to say from those words. And I know there have been not a whole lot of times, but there have been times where uh, I've obviously offended somebody oh, dear. through a tweet which was not my intention, but it's just because I perhaps didn't exactly choose the the best words to use since I couldn't have my voice attached to it, if that makes any sense. No, it does make sense. That's a big problem with emails. And yes, in social media, that it's also a a huge problem and it can start Mm -hmm. some very heated conversations. I'll put it that way. Yes. And, um, but I'm sure, I think just, but like I said, the core of the person shines through, and most of the time it gets solved. Absolutely. Yes, most Absolutely. of the time. So let's move on. Now that we know that, especially back in the day, I'm hoping some people are still using it in that, that fashion where you're building the relationships, you're having the conversations. Yeah. How can someone actually get started on Twitter if they're a brand newbie to this platform? Sure. I mean, the first thing I would say is I think I would – let people know that it does take time to build your Twitter world. Um, so, cause I think some people want to leap in and get instant gratification. And I just think it takes time, whether it's a couple months, you know, or it might not even take that long, but anyway, just wanted to start with saying that. Right. I think the most important, you know, if you know somebody already on Twitter, that's great. I mean, definitely follow them first. And if they're, and, and to kind of know what you're looking for from Twitter too. Um, so if you go on and you follow your friends, start to read all their tweets and, and follow the conversations. I think that's the most important thing. So if you see one of your friends having a conversation with somebody else about a topic that you find interesting, Follow that conversation, and then if if that conversation pleases you or seems interesting to you, then follow that person that you know they're conversing with, uh, and then you can kind of just fall down a rabbit hole with that, right? Because exactly. one person leads to another, leads to another, and I think you can pretty quickly build your list of followers. Um, and if you start off with let's say twenty followers, and then you just start kind of paying attention to those people you're going to start picking up on Twitter pretty quickly, I think. Um, And then as soon as you feel comfortable, if you like what somebody's tweeted, go ahead and retweet it. 
Um, you can like it, but that's like you said earlier, that's kind of a relatively newer thing. I don't know how helpful that really is. So retweeting somebody's tweet that you find interesting, even better would be to retweet that tweet with your own comment. Right. Why are you retweeting this tweet? <laughs> you know? Right, right. Well, I just want to insert really quickly the algorithms yeah. of Twitter. Just they have something similar to Facebook. And likes do help a little bit in your Twitter mm -hmm. world, but the retweets uh, definitely help people out the most. Just there doing a retweet. Commenting with retweets, too, does help. But if you really want to help a person out, just do a retweet. But That's I like, good to know. Yeah, I like the comments, though, because, yes, I think it's good to know why people are sending something out again. Well, and I think it does also help people find you and to understand you know, what you believe and what you're all about. So um, I think it's just a, a further help in doing that. So, yeah. And then again, then kind of extending from that, when you start to feel comfortable, you know, responding or, or jumping into a conversation and adding your own thoughts. And I know I remember the first time I did that, I was so terrified, <laughs> you know, and I remember I sent that reply and just wanted to crumple up. I was so nervous to see what would happen. But, you know, nothing bad is really going to happen. And uh, that's where the engagement starts and conversation. And, and I think that's when things start to get even more fun, of course. Right, right. Well, I do want to point out, I love how you, how you say start with following the conversations here and there first in order to get to know people better and, and see if they're uh, something that, that really you can connect to. Um, sure. I like that better than, because I do research sometimes in order to build uh, somebody's Twitter account and that is another way of doing it. You can actually do searches and research for people that make sense and that match what you are setting out to do. But I love the fact where you, you pointed out, follow the conversation first, because mm -hmm. I think that's going to be even more of a telltale sign of if this person is, is great to connect with. Right. And I guess it, it depends on what you're looking for and what you want out of Twitter. I happen to love conversation and because I feel like that inspires me to think differently than I would naturally think myself, right? right. Expands my world. So I need that conversation to, to do that, to prompt me to do that. So that's why I, that's how I find people. Are you finding that people are still open to having conversations on Twitter? Cause as I mentioned, that like button is killing a little bit of that. You know, I've had a lot of people that I've, uh, treated with over the years who have started to fall away from Twitter say that same thing to me, but I, I just don't find that myself. Interesting. Um, so I still have a lot of people I converse with. And the other thing I would say is, I don't know if you follow this at all, Shoshana, but there's this huge network of new music people on Twitter. Oh. Have you kind of fallen into that, that world? I don't think I, I mean, I'm familiar with it, but I don't think I've fallen into the Twitter part the of that Twitter world. The Twitter world of it? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's huge. Oh, wow. And, like, so I, I think it's once a week. They have something that it's a, it's hashtag Muso Chat. I don't know how to say it. M-U-S-O-C-H-A-T. Um, and, like, here's an example. Last night – oh, well, I should back up. Sorry. 
they, um, once a week, I think it is, they will have a different person that starts with questions and then all these people join in with their answers and then they have conversations based on people's answers. Um, and I think it lasts for an hour and uh, a different person leads it every week. And last night I was, I happened to kind of go onto Twitter when they were doing this and I was so amazed by the conversations they were having and how open they were to sharing their struggles with um, just careers in music mm-hmm. uh, and that type of thing. So there are really, there's a great example of where they're using Twitter in, a, I think, a very conversational way and also a supportive way, you know. Um, and, and I would say they were opening themselves up to quite a, a dramatic degree, you know, and, um, wow. yeah, it was, it was pretty, pretty awesome. And I even tweeted about it this morning. I tweeted to three of them to just say, I just wanted you to know I was eavesdropping. <laughs> um, and I was really moved by how vulnerable you were all being to, with one another. That's amazing. Um, the fact that you're, yeah, you can eavesdrop something the, on these conversations yeah. and, and then join in if you feel moved to do so. Right. So are they actually just having conversations or are they having an official chat? That was an official chat that okay. they do. Okay. But all those same people who are all really, they, they, their shared interest is around new music. So lots of composers, oh, uh, performers that are primarily performing um, new, you know, commissioned works and that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, they're the ones that seem to be really tight knit right now. And I know that they have a gathering where they actually physically gather and meet. Um, wow. It's called new music gathering. And I think they have a web page. Um, and I know that one of their, the people that I think kind of spearheaded that whole movement suddenly passed away not long ago. Oh, no. Um, and that's kind of, I think, how I first really got to be aware of them and what they were doing. Um, so anyway, so there's an example. It's not dying. I really don't think it's dying. Well, that's good. And I, I definitely need to tap into that. I have added some composers to my roster of people that I'm doing audience development with. And so promoting new music is is almost forefront on my plate right now. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, thank you for the tip. I will definitely yeah. jump in and, and find out what uh, what they're doing over there. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah, the projects that, that just naturally happen on Twitter, I think are amazing. This does make Twitter different than all the other platforms. I haven't had that type of experience on Facebook at all. Mm. It's harder, I think, to actually meet new people on Facebook. It's mainly just connecting to people you already know. But Correct. with Twitter, it's always about meeting new people, and, and you could take it to the next level. I have made uh, some friends that I, I've actually met in person, too, and um, and then it just goes on from there. So. Yes, I, Carol Gray, I would, would say, is definitely one of my favorite Twitter people. I ended up working with him as well, but every time I go to Portland, I try to visit with him because he, he's become one of my favorite people. So, yeah, I, I, I just, I th- I'm hoping that we are generating some enthusiasm for using Twitter in such a way that you really are building these relationships and, and everybody benefits from that. 
Absolutely. So let's move on. So you to get started, unless there's something else you want to say to get started, um, definitely follow the conversations and, and dip your toe in and then get in there when you feel more comfortable. Are there any other get started hints that you would like to say? I don't think so. I think that I think that covers it. I think I would just, you know, again, go back to what I said at the very beginning, just to be, you know, you can ask honest and challenging questions, just, but just be careful, you know, be thoughtful about right. how you word them. Yeah. Right. So then we're going to go on to your Twitter best practices and take us through, I'm, I'm interested in this, take us through a day of how you actually use Twitter. Sure. Absolutely. So, uh, I sometimes use it more in the day than I should, but in <laughs> general, I usually do a little bit in the morning when I wake up and I'm drinking my tea, mm-hmm. um, and then I usually do it in the middle of the day and then also at the end of the day. So that's what I try to do. Um, sometimes I get a little crazy and do a lot more than that, but that's okay. <laughs> Especially if um, you're watching the Grammys or something and you get involved on, on Twitter, you kind of uh, are there for the whole two hours or something. There you go. But how, how much time do you spend at each session normally? Sure. I would say no more than an hour. Um, and I always start by opening my notifications, okay. which is where it's going to show you, you know, who retweeted your tweets, who replied, all that type of thing. Um, because I want to make sure that I am nurturing those relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, because when people take the time or are brave enough to respond to you and interact, they're going to want to see if you're going to react back, of course. Right. 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 Um, So that's why I like to, if, if I have no time for anything else, that's what I'll do. So I will try to reply to anybody that's taken the time to actually tweet to me. Um, Sometimes I will thank them if they retweeted something. I think that used to be more of a common practice you know, when Twitter started, like it used to be that if somebody retweeted you, you always thanked them. Mm -hmm. I still (laughs) Um, do for the most part. And I think I do quite often as well, or I'll reply with a comment or something. Um, so I'll do that. And I always check my DMS. I don't get direct messages very much anymore, which is fine with me. Right. (laughs) Um, cause that can sometimes be a little awkward. Uh, but I will check just to make sure. Cause there are things like when um, our friend Rock D Minor passed away, I know there was a lot of DMing about that because we right. were all trying to figure out what was going on and right. um, that type of thing. So, yeah, so that's how I start. And then after that, I I have a list I've put together of the people that I want to check up on first. Right, um, right. So I will open up that list and start with that, especially if I don't have a whole lot of time. Um. So, yeah, so that's what I do. And then if I have time, I'll reply to things and do retweeting of things that I find interesting and uh, read blog posts that people post. Uh, yeah, all that. So I'm just going to back up for a second. For the newbies, yeah. if you're still out there, if the newbie Twitter people are, are listening to this conversation, the building a list is just building a separate feed where you can then just focus on certain people, a certain group of people. So it's just something that you can create on Twitter. And that's what Erica is talking about, that you can create a specific list for certain people that you want to follow. Right. And I'm just going to jump on and say, I just, that 
brought to my mind that you can actually look at other people's lists. That's true. And that can be a handy tool when you're building your who you're going to follow. So if you go to somebody that's in an, a field that you're interested in, you can look at their lists. And if they have a list of like, let's say I'm interested in dog food and they have a list of you know whatever uh, people that talk about dog food, then you can go through that list and follow all those people and you're saving a lot of time too. So that is true. I also brought, had something brought to my mind, and I'm thinking about the amount of followers that each of us have, which varies vastly. Right. But I do want to say that Twitter, to me, is not about how many people you can get. Uh, right. It's not about quantity. It's about quality. And that's what a lot of people tend to forget. And I think that's why Twitter has gotten a bad rap recently is because there are people out there that are just using it to show how many people are following them. But if you really look at their accounts, it's a lot of bots. It's a lot of people that don't really make sense that they're connected with. There's a lot of dead accounts. So when you're using Twitter, even if you only have 10 people you're following and having conversations with, that is more quality than some of these people that have millions of followers that mm -hmm. you're not, you don't know from Adam. So I think that when you're starting out, don't, don't be disheartened if you only have a few, few really rich people that you're following that are best to connect with and, and having great conversations with because then you're doing Twitter right. That, Absolutely. That is definitely. And I also want to mention there is a weird phenomenon that I personally am experiencing. Um, I have over 4,000 followers because I've been on for so long. And they say that when you reach over 3,000 followers, sometimes people don't think that you're real anymore. So I want to say if anybody's following me out there on Twitter, I do lo still love to have conversations and, and definitely reply to something that I'm putting out there because I'm a real person still <laughs> tweeting <laughs> out there and uh, I would love to continue having conversations and, and I get people that are surprised. They're like, Oh my gosh, you replied back to me because mm -hmm. I think I'm this big entity and really it's just little <laughs> old me still doing my Twitter account. Cause I love it so much. So definitely don't be afraid to tweet even at, at celebrities. You never know what will happen because some of the celebrities love conversations too. So Absolutely. I'm kind of segueing into, because you mentioned something about, I can't remember, your your daughter was looking for some research or something. <laughs> and, you know, help me out with the, with the story. But I, I wanted to talk about how, like, there could be big people that actually respond. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm going to like totally, oh yeah, okay. I've got the names right. So my daughter had to do a project for school about uh, the, the movie, The Dark Crystal. Okay. And, <laughs> and she loves puppets and that type of thing. So she really wanted to um, figure out how they made the puppets. Me. And, um, but she was having trouble finding that specific information. She could find information about sets and all that type of thing, but not puppets. So she was getting quite frustrated and she's impatient too. So she wanted like <laughs> instant, you know, instant answer. So um, because she wasn't really finding it online, I said, well, I said, maybe I should put a query out on Twitter. So I went to Twitter because I, I'm always trying to get people to fall in love with Twitter, including my daughter. <laughs> and I said, well, I did a tweet that said, my daughter's doing a research project. She needs information about 
how the puppets were made on the dark crystal. And I tagged the Jim Henson company mm-hmm. and I also tagged Frank Oz. Oh, neat. So, you know, who's like, you know, I, I mean, whatever, he's like a hero to me. Right. And, um, the first person to respond was the Jim Henson company. And it was really, really quick. And they said, well, check out, contact this, the publisher of this book. So, and I don't remember the name of the publisher. It's in San Francisco, but they, um, have published a beautiful, beautiful book about the dark crystal. So I, let's see what happened. So I think actually the publishing company pretty immediately tweeted me back. They said, DM us, direct message us. So I, I didn't know what to direct message them, but I said, okay, you told me to direct message you. And, um, within 24 hours after I had described in detail what my daughter needed to do, they had gotten permission to send us the PDF of the entire book. Wow. So that my daughter could use it and get it done in time for the project. Wow. Um, and they said, you know, please don't give this to anybody else, but here you go. Uh, and I mean, that was pretty incredible. That is pretty incredible. And then a couple of days after that, Frank Oz tweeted me back, like wow. a direct reply. <laughs> and he, it was so cute. He said something like, I'm so sorry. I was away from Twitter for a few days, so I couldn't <laughs> reply. And I'm just thinking, what? Like, whatever. <laughs> wow. That so, is he, so neat. Yeah, and he gave us a couple ideas, too. So it was awesome. Yes, that that to me just boggles my mind how it's the one way that you might actually be talking with a celebrity. It's it's kind of neat. So so Frank Oz came through and that's amazing. Yeah, Jim Henson is one of my big heroes, too. So I really got a kick out of that story. That was great. (laughs) So I don't know if I've had any. I'm trying to to think back if I've had any celebrity conversations, but um, once in a while, somebody comes through. I know that. Yeah, I think quite often for me, I've had lots of interesting things like that. So um, it's fun. I know it, the piano duo, Anderson and Rowe, um, they're mm-hmm. very good about replying personally to to things. And that's been a lot of fun. And uh, and they remember people. So, like, I've met them in person at performances and they they make that connection. So it's fun. Yeah, that's great. So I'm going to segue into something completely different unless you have any more Twitter best practices to talk about. Actually, before I go go there, I was interested, how do you end your Twitter day? Like, do you do anything special at the very end of the day? No, not necessarily. I just kind of do the same. Every time I approach Twitter, I do it in the same way. So, okay. okay. Uh, yeah. So nothing new. <laughs> All right. So the other half of Erica, as far as being a pianist, musician, etc., she also is a toy store manager. It's kind of an interesting story I've been following on Twitter mm-hmm. and Facebook. Your family had to move. Is that correct? And then- that is correct. Okay. Yeah, we mo- we moved here from just forty five minutes away so that my daughter could go to a school that we fell in love with. Okay. Yeah. And then you were thinking about careers and it was like what it was kind of a you weren't sure what you were going to do. And you you actually put it out there in the Twitterverse. So I was a a little Mm -hmm. bit a part of that. I remember having conversations. But um, tell us how you landed in the toys (laughs) in the toy land. (laughs) Sure. So um, before we moved, 
I had quit a job. I was adjunct teaching at a university for music mm-hmm. and um, I we parted ways and so I needed a part-time job because I, I am not the type that can just sit at home doing nothing Right. and I didn't know what to do musically. So I took a part-time job at a toy store that basically my daughter and I grew up at, you know, because she was young at the time and it was so close to our house. So I thought, well, I wonder if there's any jobs there. And so they hired me to work part time. Uh, and then it was six months after that that we decided to move to Roanoke. And when I told the owners that we were moving, they were like, what? <laughs> you know, <laughs> wait, we just started working with you. We like you, you know. And the um, one of the owners said, well, would you ever consider being a, a toy lady? And I was like, no, (laughs) yeah, that's what what I am. I'm a toy lady. And I was like, I just laughed it off. I was like, no, because I've never really worked in retail before. And, you know, to me, I'm a musician. That's what I do. Uh, But anyway, so I started kind of putting feelers out in Roanoke for music jobs and nothing panned out. I mean, just not a peep. It's a small town and Mm -hmm. whatever. And I was my and my husband wasn't employed and didn't have a plan for when we moved to Roanoke. So it was a couple of minutes later and my the owners were on vacation, which is when they kind of do a lot of their planning. So I emailed them and I said, well, you know how you asked me that a few months ago? I said, well, I don't know if you were joking, but I'm not joking. And I think I'd be game to try it. Uh, so that's kind of how it started. So that's neat. So uh, tell us about the toy store itself. Oh, it's adorable. So (laughs) our toy store, we're a small um, specialty toy retailer. So we try to have toys that you're not going to necessarily find in Target or the big box stores. Um, And because we're a small store, we handpick everything that's in there. So I work with between 60 and 80 different companies. Um, and we handpicked toys that we think will work for our customers and uh, bring them into the store. And we like to call it a curated toy store. So when people come in, it's pretty amazing. Like people have this look of fear on them when they come into the toy store. If they have to buy a gift for somebody else, <laughs> you might not think that, but it really happens. Right. right. And, and so we really see our role as helping people find gifts for the kid that has absolutely everything and that spends too much time on their Nintendo or whatnot. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we try to stick something in their hands and wrap it for them so that they're ready to go with a gift that they feel good about. So so you do the wrapping as well. That's neat. We sure do. Yeah. So it's kind of a little bit of an old fashioned take on, uh, you know, retailing. And our store is located in the middle of this historic neighborhood that's a blend of businesses and residential. Mm-hmm. So it's really special and unique. So, Neat. yeah, it's, it's lovely. So how many employees do you have there? And Yeah, so it's basically, so for the first three years, it was just me, oh, <laughs> six wow. days a week. Wow. Uh, and then about a year ago, we hired somebody else, uh, another toy lady, who works part-time with me, and now she and I actually share the job, so I'm no longer full-time, but uh, she's amazing. She's another, she teaches early 
kid music. So she does kind of mom and me classes. So she's a musician as well. So we just hit it off and we kind of have a similar mission when it comes to teaching music and selling toys. Oh, neat. So that kind of gives us a segue. Well, first, let me ask, what's the most popular toy that people buy from your store? I'm just curious. The most popular toy. Okay. I would say the the most popular thing is something called a pogo jumper. Oh, okay. (laughs) It's like a pogo stick. But, like, pogo sticks terrify me. I would never get on a pogo stick. But a pogo jumper is like a foam brick that's flush to the ground, and it has, like, this bungee cord handle. Mm -hmm. So you just stand on the foam brick-like thing, pull up on the bungee thing, and you hop. And when you hop, it squeaks. Oh, no. Yes. Parents so, everywhere are thanking you for the squeaks. I can hear it now. But <laughs> you can Google it and you can take the squeaker out. I've researched Oh, that. okay. That's good. Yes. But really, it's pretty cute. And what we love about it is it's for three and up. So, and you can weigh up to 250 pounds and still use this pogo jumper. Oh, neat. So I could go on and on about why this is so dandy. But <laughs> um, I mean, we sell it to adults. I've had teenagers come in that they've pooled their money together to buy one. Um, it's just a great toy, but kind of one of those unexpected toys. Definitely. I haven't <laughs> heard about this at all. That's neat. Well, you need one, I think. Yeah, I guess so. so. Yeah. <laughs> so let's segue into the what lessons from running a toy store could translate to arts management. Because I'm sure there are some some gems that you could tell us that, that might be helping your music career. Sure. Well, we'll see. We'll have a conversation since you're the expert, you know, on audience (laughs) development. I don't know. I was kind of thinking about this throughout the last couple of days. I'm like, well, I don't know. I'm curious what Shoshana would say. (laughs) Well, I would first off say the fact that you're old fashioned, you have that attention to detail and you're curating specifically for people. And I'm sure that if you get a request that you try to place those types of orders. So it's a very hands on face-to-face people-oriented store from what I'm hearing and that would translate over to how you want to treat your audiences so that would be the first thing that I that comes to my mind in terms of how that so yeah it's like treating your your audience or your customers as individuals and unique people that all have their own wants and needs exactly the second thing that comes to mind the fact that you go to the point that you wrap the the gift for them so it makes it super easy to go in there get it wrapped up and they leave with with not having to to think about anything else that's going the little extra mile for your customers and that's something that i think in the music world we need to do more of Because I don't think we follow through and go the extra mile half the time. People go to a concert and then they leave and then that's it. Mm -hmm. So actually going the extra mile to to make them comfortable and following up just to see how they're doing. And I don't think we're doing that enough. So just going those extra touches are huge. So, um, yeah, something that I think would translate. Absolutely. And kind of along those lines, I think so in in the retail world, or I guess it might just be business in general. um, I don't know if you've heard about this phrase, but there's the phrase um, pain point. Have you ever heard of that? Yes, yes, yes. I have. Yeah. Yeah. So we talk about that when, you know, we're trying to improve our our toy store, our business, like 
why, what is the pain point? What are people fearing? What are they dreading when they come to go shopping for a toy for somebody? Right. Right. Because if we can help to uh, minimize those painful things, then most likely those people are going to feel more comfortable and then want to come back for more. Right. Right. Um, and that's kind of along the lines of, I think, what you were talking about. So, you know, like in the arts world, do we want to make a big deal really about what people are wearing to performances? I don't think so. And that's actually, I think, for a lot of people, a huge issue, right? Definitely. Um, I mean, I heard somebody that I was talking to yesterday said that when they've been, they've done research and that's one of the main things that keeps people away from going to classical performances because they don't know what to wear. Well, that's, you know, right. I mean, wow. Okay. We can solve that pretty easily. (laughs) Exactly. So making it clear that we don't care what you wear to a performance or whatever, whatever you have to do to make that more comfortable. Um, and I've definitely learned that in the toy store. Like I talked about earlier, you know, really connecting with how hard it is for people to come in and buy a gift when they think they're recipient already has everything. That's really a point of pain for a lot of these customers that we have. Um, they just don't want to be there. They don't want to be wasting money on something that, um, you know, they don't think is going to be used or whatnot. Uh, so we really try to help to ease those fears about that. So I'm guessing you have conversations with the people such as how would you describe this person you're buying a gift for? What are, oh, what yeah. are the things that they like? Um, and you're getting to know not only the customer, but also the person that they're buying the gift for. Absolutely. And that's something I think could also translate because are we getting to know our audiences as well as we could be? Are we mm-hmm. asking those questions where we really know them as people? And I, I brought this up time and time again, but this is something that I think would translate uh, perfectly to the arts world is when you're with that customer, I'm sure you're, you're asking what types of questions do you ask them? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So those questions like, yeah, tell me what they like. Tell me what they don't like. A big one for the toy store is tell me what frustrates them. Oh, because you know, there's a fine line. You don't want them to only have things that are not going to challenge them. But at the same time, there are definitely toys that you don't want to get like, let's say there's a lot of building toys that have a lot of detail and that are actually hard to keep together for some kids. That would be torture. Right. You know, so especially as a gift from somebody that's coming from somebody else, that's not a family member, you might not want to give that to somebody because that's just going to cause a lot of anxiety and frustration in the child. Interesting. Yeah. So I had a conversation not that long ago with somebody who was a newbie to the classical music world and his frustration of not knowing uh, the ins and outs of a classical music performance and the background of the music and, and things of that nature kind of deterred him from being a part of going to a classical music concert. He was mm-hmm. actually a theater person. And so he felt that He's also an arts marketing person, so he's like, why don't the classical music world actually share what it's like to go to a performance before showing up? I don't mm. get it. And it actually relieved the the frustration and, and the, the fear of actually attending a performance. So that goes back to the, the pain points. And yeah. I think uh, people 
when are not we're not realizing the frustration of somebody brand new to classical music. Right, right, absolutely. And like I, you know, and you and I have had these conversations for years now too. But I'm very, I, I, I always think about how can you make it clear that as a performer, you want to be making a connection with the audience mm-hmm. and have it be a two-way street, right? But I think in a lot of classical um, performances, that doesn't happen and it's not encouraged. And it's hard to get that message out that that as a performer is what you want, right? Right. So like I'm in this new ensemble, and but that's one of our goals is to not have that be the case with us. We want to make it very clear that we want our performances to be a two-way street. For instance, if somebody was so inspired to raise their hand in the middle of two pieces and have a question to ask, we would welcome that, you know? Right, right. Um, so, like, there was a performance we did recently, and in order to kind of combat that awkwardness, um, I had put together this little memento for them that had a direct connection with one of the pieces I was performing, and I handed them out to people as they came in and sat down in the audience. So that forced us to have, forced is not a good word, that encouraged <laughs> us to have a conversation, you know, before the concert started, because I, I want that conversation. I don't want them to think that I'm somewhere backstage because I'm better than them, you know, right. and uh, I'm doing something so lofty that I can't possibly be distracted by them beforehand. Um, so, so that's just something I like to do. And I think it's that type of thinking comes from a little bit too working with customers in the toy store. You yeah, know. can you imagine you go to a toy store trying to find a toy and there there's a snotty toy connoisseur trying hey. to help you and oh this toy is the best and rattling off manufacture this and all the details yeah. that you're like, Oh my god, I don't want to buy a toy here. <laughs> right, right, exactly. And and there's a delicate balance, like you have to be careful. Some people wanna be in the audience and be anonymous, and that's fine too. Mm-hmm. But it's I think being open to um sensing what your audience who your audience is each individual not as a whole (laughs) right right so how do you handle um the delicacy of when somebody only has a certain amount of budget that comes into your toy store oh that's so such a good question and i try to never ever you know like i I don't turn off and say oh they're only going to spend this much so i'm just going to let them fend for themselves you know that's not it right um cuz i think any gift of any size is a gift from the heart it's something that is valuable you know so yeah i try to make the customer feel as comfortable as possible and make sure especially if they feel sheepish about when they say oh well i really can only spend like 15 dollars I try to just say, no problem. We have some great, you know, mm-hmm. let's find something. And then I try to shift the focus to who are we buying it for? So it gets it away from the money. And then I don't even bring up the money after that. Right, right. The reason why I ask that is because I've been knee deep in fundraising for a couple organizations recently. And the question came up of how do we or should we recognize people that have only given a certain amount of money? Oh. And I'm just like, absolutely. <laughs> yes. Yeah. What is, yeah, their, their gift is meaningful from them and yes. we should not be 
we should not be excluding them from recognition because they could only give a certain amount of money. And so I know there's a lot of arts organizations out there that would be like, okay, we're only going to thank the people that are over $500 or something. And oh. I'm like, that's not <laughs> the case at all. You should be thanking everybody. Everybody deserves some type of recognition. And you yeah. never know, they may be in a spot to only give $50 now, but what if they win the lottery? Or what if, what if their circumstances change dr dramatically? And because you've treated them with such care and, and you've nurtured that relationship, yeah. who knows? They could be like the future $10,000 that you get down the road. So, um, but well, anyway, and I think it's yeah. I think it's important too for friends of that person that donated that fifty dollars. If they go to another concert and see their friend's name in the booklet as having donated, I think that's a powerful message, and you know, could be potentially getting another donor. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. So, are there any other things that come to mind about about the toy store? Yeah, stuff? about the toy to store. Yeah, the one other thing that I came up with is that. Um, whether it be musicians or people buying toys, people have an odd concept of playing. <laughs> so in the toy store, I get so many people that come in looking for toys that are educational and meaning that toys that teach ABCs, one, two, threes, a very specific thing. And I kind of have an issue with that. And I sometimes make that known <laughs> because I believe that all play is, uh, well, what was the word I just used? It's educational. It's all beneficial. So it doesn't need to be something that teaches ABCs and one, two, threes to be something that's a worthy toy. That seems to be our challenge in America generally anyway. Right. How like right. The, the core curriculum that's going on right now that it's more about the ABCs and one, two, threes and less about the play and the creativity and the, you you know where I'm going with this. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I mean, we are we are like mind in most ways. I think, um, and that applies to the musical world too. I work with so many musicians that are so much more concerned with um, the ABCs and one two threes. Yes, you getting know? the notes right instead of exactly like, about the what is your message? What are you trying to say? Right. Yeah. Well, that definitely translates. And we had. Um, I had that conversation with John Steinmetz, um, who mm -hmm. is another Twitter person. Yeah, I met yep. through Twitter, and um, he's a bassoon player, composer, just another all-around musician. And um, he was commenting on how we are not getting the message of the love for music across enough. That right. we're so concerned about the technicality of of the music that we're not putting forth our hearts and expression in the music enough and, and then translating that to the audiences. So we had this, this major webinar that uh, people can still get a hold of on my website, but making uh, the, I think it was, I don't even remember what it's called is making the love known or something like that. I'll have to get the right, the right uh, title for it. Yeah. But um, I think that is, that is a huge problem that I think that, what you're saying translates very specifically well to the music and arts management world in general. Right. And I think kind of taking it a step further for me as a musician, um, 
if you share yourself, if you play when you're a performer and you truly are sharing a piece of yourself with your audience, you're not worried so much about the ABCs, one, two, threes. You're going to be giving a performance that the audience can respond to. So it is more reciprocal, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a more than the music making, the whole performance thing. It's a community effort. It's a social thing. And it's the same thing with toys. So if you, you know, a lot of times, Parents will think that if they hand their child flashcards that have the ABCs on them or an electronic toy that will teach their kids the ABCs in a cute electronic fashion, that that that's playing. But there's no social interaction there. Right. Right. So if but most kids, what they really want is just some sort of interaction. It doesn't mean you have to be playing on your hands and knees with them necessarily. But there are ways to play. There are toys that you can buy that encourage communication and socialization. And that's what I want in my store. There's nothing I love better. Like I'll never forget the moments there's, I can think of two recently where a grandparent has come into the store with a little kid and we're very hands-on. We let them play with toys there. Mm -hmm. And like to see a grandparent on the floor with the kids lining up the cars in a nice little neat little row you know, to see that sort of interaction, that's what it's all about to me. So I think we need, we need that in both worlds so much more. Oh, definitely. And it, it made me think of how there are different levels of engagement that we have to keep in mind for our audience members. Like some of them do want that hands-on type of interaction mm-hmm. that you're talking about. Some people don't. So it right. is a matter of finding their comfort level and how mm-hmm. they want to be engaged with in order to make them happy. And that's the same with, with a toy. I'm sure there's there's toys out there that are more more solitaire and maybe just interacting like, oh, that looks amazing to me or something like that. Right. That, that would be what they the engagement that they want. But then there's right. other toys out there that are, are extremely interactive and you're yep. playing with them. And that would be the more the people that are more hands-on in our audiences that that want to be a part of the music, not just sitting there listening to the music, if, if that makes sense. Absolutely. You know, this is kind of off the subject, but maybe not. Um, there's a <laughs> there's a Shakespeare festival near us in Stanton, Virginia. Um, oh, yeah, and yeah. Definitely. I don't know if you've heard of it. They of are absolutely amazing. And to me, they're a brilliant, they have a brilliant solution for helping to cater to both types of audiences, audiences that want the hands-on stuff and the audiences that just want to go and take it in because they have a, they've recreated the globe theater. I guess that's no black friars theater. Right. And it's a very small theater. Right. And, but they always put stools on the stage and they also tell the audience that if you don't want to interact, don't sit in the main front area, you know, that faces Mm -hmm. the stage. Mm -hmm. And, but if, if you're a little shyer, you can sit in the balcony or you can sit, you know, on the sides. And that's great. So they will, if you're on the stage, obviously they're going to interact with you. They may pull you up and they may dance with you. No <laughs> you know? kidding. Or put a hat on you. I remember seeing Cyrano <laughs> de Bergerac and they put Cyrano's hat on somebody. Um, but if that's not cool with you, then you can just sit on the sides and take it in. Right. So I think that's a brilliant example of an organization that has figured out how to make everyone feel comfortable. Oh, that is brilliant. And in fact, we're going to 
go full circle with the Twitter, Amy, one of my Twitter friends, happens to be one of their directors. So no <laughs> I'll kidding. have to say, yeah, so I'll have to tell her that, that the example came up from her Shakespeare yeah, organization. Totally. Isn't that funny? That's so, hilarious. Yeah, she was on the podcast way back in the day of one of my one of my first podcasts, actually. She was part of that world. Um, so that's funny that you brought that up. That's yeah. great. They're amazing. So if you are ever out here, you need to go see them. I do, with you. <laughs> and I have to. I have to actually meet up with Amy, and I did actually have dinner with her when she was in Boulder, Colorado. So another story of Twitter friends becoming person-to-person friends. So there you uh, go. Exactly. Yep. Oh, how neat. That's how funny. Neat. Well, before we go, because it sounds like uh, our time is almost up here, but before we go, I want you to, to tell us about what your current and future music projects are. Sure. Well, so I talked about this a little bit earlier. I'm in a new ensemble called the Alma Ensemble, oh. and it's myself at the piano and then um, a flutist and a clarinetist. And there's a lot of things that I love about this group. Uh, we are all people that have other full-time jobs or mostly full-time jobs during the day. Mm-hmm. But we're also musicians that have sort of had to put our music aside and our performing aside because of our jobs. Um, and we finally got to the point where we thought that's not right. Yes. We have something to offer musically and we want to do it. So even though we're not tied into the music scene here the way we maybe wanted to, we thought this is ridiculous for us to let that be an excuse. So, so we're playing music together. And, um, the other thing, well, one of the other things that's cool is that we're focusing on the music on music written by women. Oh, cool. Um, is that why yeah. you're called the AMA ensemble? Is that? Yes. Yeah. Tell of, us about that. <laughs> sure. So it's like a dual meaning. So it's named after Alma Mahler, right. who of course was a composer in her own right, but was slightly overshadowed by slightly. somebody else. <laughs> um, and then Alma, of course, also means soul. And mm. one of our other missions is to provide performances, like I talked about earlier, that uh, encourage connection between the audience and performer. So we're giving our soul to the audience and hopefully that will go the other way as well. So that's all about us. And um, we are focusing on commissioning works by other women composers uh, and making sure that they get paid (laughs) because we know that a lot of times composers, just like anyone else, will give away their art just because they want their works promoted and and performed. But we feel like it's important for them. It's their career, you know, Um, so we want them to get paid. Wonderful. Yeah, I'm trying to make sure that when I'm promoting my composers that they will get paid in kind, too. So it is important. I mean, they have to make a living, too. (laughs) It is. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So that's one project. And then I also mentioned earlier that I'm only part time now at the toy store. So Part of the reason I did that was for the ensemble, but also because I really love doing practice coaching. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Tell people about that. Yeah. So I love helping people figure out how to make their practicing more efficient. And this sounds corny, but also more loving to themselves um, because I've worked with so many clients and every time I watch, they, they always submit videos to me of their practicing People are so mean to themselves. 
kind of astonishing. Um, and it's, it only takes about 10 minutes, 15 minutes into any video I've watched of anybody to see them look so incredibly defeated. Wow. Um, and, and this is musicians of all levels of experience. Uh, and I have worked because I'm a collaborator. Uh, I've worked with every single instrument. I've been in lessons for all different instruments. So even though I'm a pianist, I feel I have a lot to offer to anybody because also practicing techniques are a lot the same, no matter what instrument you're playing or if you're a singer or, or anything, mm-hmm. it's all about problem solving and, um, and goal setting. And so that's what I love to do, but it's been really hard to make that as my soul right. <laughs> means of living because there's only so many people in our little area. Plus, I don't like to tread on teachers' toes. So, mm-hmm. um, but my hope is that I'm kind of looking into Patreon as a as a way maybe to make this work better. Um, so we'll see how yeah. that all works. Yeah, I need to pull somebody in here that that actually did well with Patreon because I'm still. Not sure if that's translating into money for people, but maybe somebody out there will will help us with that because um, I have artists that are trying that as well, and I'm not sure if they're making money off of it yet. But that's good to know because yeah. I've been hesitant, and you know, the only musician I know that's done really well is Amanda Palmer, who's oh. a Twitter person. Okay, uh, so she's somebody to look at. She's she's not classical per se. Um, she does very very creative. Wow. Powerful stuff. So look at Amanda Palmer, but that's what she's, she's figured that out. Let Mm -hmm. me tell you. So, um, yeah. So we'll see what happens with all that, but I would love to love to make the practice coaching more of a thing. Well, we might have to bring you back on to talk about that because when I was talking about the sharing the love that we're not doing that enough, I think part of the reason is we're so hard on ourselves too. And, that's a whole nother conversation in itself that the artists are, are really hard on ourselves. And how does that translate to the audience? Yeah. So it's, it, it's a, another conversation I might want to bring you back for. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Is there anything else before we go that you want to just tell our audiences out there about Twitter toys, whatever you want to say? <laughs> wow. Yeah. No pressure. No, no pressure. Oh. No, I mean, just going back to Twitter, I, again, just, oh, I really highly recommend it. Um, it is so unlike Facebook. I think people are a bit soured by Facebook, especially right now. Right now. But yeah. it is not the same thing. It is not the same thing. And I think because of where, you know, things that are going on in the world, I think it's easy to feel bitter about and negative about the world and, um, uh, and I'm sure you can find negative people and things on Twitter, but I think if you approach it in the right way, you will find yourself encouraged and loved and supported. And who wouldn't want that? So I think I would just leave it with that. Right. And that's a great way to end our ADS podcast. I'm going to end on that <laughs> note. Thank you so much, Erica, for taking the time out to stop by the ADS podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. You take care. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye.
What a great conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Erica and I actually talked a little bit after the podcast, and we could go on and on just talking about this, that, and the other thing. So she's a good friend, and I really appreciated her stopping by. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you have any feedback, questions, comments, please send comments to ads at buildmyaudience.com. And be sure to check out my website, buildmyaudience.com, that has services and products for building your audience. Thank you so much. Have a great day.